Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at, at Messiah, but sure, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised and on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors. Amen. Please take your seats. I too have a polo shirt on today, but... I'm so intimidated by Dave Robertson's biceps, so I'm going to keep my jumper on. He goes to the gym, I don't. That's the difference. When you go up to London, your ears are always confronted by this message, especially if you travel on the tube. That's if Southern get you there on time. Uh, and your eyes are always confronted by this message. That's whether Southern get you there on time or not. And that is these three, these three timeless words. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. That moment when you take your life in your hands and you put one foot in front of the other and go from the security of the concrete platform to the transience of the metal uh, underground uh, train. You're just taking your life in your hands. Whether the gap is two inches, that's uh, five centimetres and new money. Whether it's the best part of a foot, you really are having to take a leap of faith from one material to another. The danger is real. Mind the gap. Those three words are a brilliant metaphor for the struggle that we all face to be men and women of integrity. There can be a great gap between who we are in the private sphere and who we are in the public sphere. There can be a two-inch or a two-mile gap between who you are in the home and who you are when you set foot into the place where you work. 
there can be a gap, a gospel gap, if you're a Christian here this morning, between the truths that you know and the life that you live. There can be a huge difference if you're not a Christian here this morning or you're not yet a Christian and you're here this morning, between the convictions that you have and the ethics that you use in your life, there can be a huge gap, whether you are departing from the safety of a platform onto a train or in your own life. And this passage, one of the ways we could interpret it, if we just had three words, would be mind the gap. Mind the gap between the truth that you know and the life that you live. If you've not been with us for the last few weeks, we've been in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a series of four huge sermons that Moses gave towards the end of his life to a new generation of Israelites who had not seen the miraculous and wondrous and powerful deeds that God had enacted to bring his people from slavery into the freedom of a loving relationship with him. And they're about to go in and take the land. And the question from Moses' lips and from the heart of God to his people are, will you trust me in a real and lasting way in a way that your parents did not will you go in I will go before you I'll fight your battles for you I've given you this land will you take me at my word do you trust me or is there a gap in your life that's the words that we look at this morning chapter 6 verse 4 as central to the faith of Judaism uh, verse 4 of chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy begins uh, here it's the Shema that's the Hebrew word for here. Here, O Israel, this is what God asks of you today. It doesn't just say from the pen, as it were, of Moses and from the heart and mouth of God. It doesn't just say this is information that you need to know God better. This is a relationship that you can enjoy if you hear these words from the heart of God and you seek to live your life in congruence with an authenticity, with an integrity of life. You hear these words from God and you seek with God's strength for them to shape every aspect, every nook and cranny of your heart and life should be guided by this decree. Three aspects of knowing God can be seen here. Verse 4, number 1, if you want to be a follower of God, you've got to believe in God truly, truly, wholly. You've got to believe in God truly. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. What does that mean? It was the dominant belief of the time, about 3,000 years ago, that there were, there were gods in numerous form. There was the God of the sea and the God of the land. There was the God of the sky, the God of the heavens and the God of the crops and fertility. There was a whole panoply of gods in the time that this was originally written in. And you would pray to a different God depending on what you wanted. You would seek to garner his favour by giving different offerings. It's the gods of the lands. And into this culture and into this time and into this society, there was a very different way of treating God. Because God says in verse 4, there is one God. Now there's no difference 3,000 years later in our day and age. There are different people who have different gods. There's not a, a monolithic or monotheism. There's not one God. That if you ask people on the street, if you go to the Ashley Centre, and did a survey, if you ask your friends, they would all have gods not out there, but in their own hearts. The God I worship is different to the God you worship. How can you be so arrogant to say that there is one God? Where does it say that in the Bible? It says it right here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. There may not be many gods. There may not be a God of fertility. There may not be a God of the sky and the sea and the land. But in our hearts and in modern culture, there are many different gods. It could be the God of 
a God of comfort. It could be the God of material acquisition. There could be all sorts of gods of different shapes and sizes. So the culture is very different. And the only thing that's changed is the time. And here's God saying, you may believe in many different gods 3,000 years ago or in the 21st century, but I am one. There's a realness to me. There's an otherness to me. There's a separateness to me. I'm not a God who you make. I'm not a mental construct that you construct when you are suffering and when you're ill and when you're in pain. I'm a God who you come and you recognize and you depend on me. I'm not a God who is someone of your making. I reveal myself to you and I have done that in the Bible. And I am one. You may worship many other gods, but they are not real and there's a realness to me. There's a uniqueness to me. There's a separateness and an otherness to me. That's the God of the Bible. He's not a God of our own description or a God of our own imagination. He's not a construct that we can make. He's a God who's revealed himself in a very real and personal way. You may respond, especially if you're not a Christian here this morning, how arrogant is that to say that God, there's only one God? Well, let's look at this in a different way. I read this this week and I think it's helpful. How do you know there's only one you? Imagine this. Imagine someone comes up to you and says, I want to walk alongside you for a few months of your life. I'm going to do a documentary and then I'm going to write a book on you. And three months later, having spent time with you, a fly-on-the-wall documentary, and as they're writing up the notes for their book, they say to, to me, for example, well, I've come to this conclusion about you. I think you're an excellent cook. I think that you're a superb musician, and I think you're very poor at relationships with other people. Now, I can play the spoons, but that's all I can play. I can burn water, so I'm not a great cook. But I think I'm okay with relationships. And I can say to that person quite justifiably, I think, I don't know who you've been looking, but it's not me. There's only one me, and the person you've described is not me. That's not real. You need to, get me you need to know me who I, or how I really am. You need to have another three months with me. And rather than your understanding of me, why don't we spend some time together, and I will tell you who I am. That's just what God has done in the Bible. God is not a figment of our imagination. He's not an emotional crutch when we're suffering. The God of the heavens and the earth has revealed himself personally and in a real way. And that's why he says, I want you to, I want you to know me who I really am. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You don't know me unless you know who I really am. If you're to worship me, you need to acknowledge my otherness. You need to acknowledge my reality, my presence. I'm not a God who is unknowable. I'm a God who's revealed himself sufficiently and fully. And there is an irony here. There is a deep irony here. The God we most desperately need is not a God of our own imagination. A God of our own imagination is limited to our own understanding and our intellect. But a God of our own making will not demand our worship. He will not be a God who can't be questioned. So the God of the Bible is not a creation from our own understanding. He's not a God who we invent. He is a God that needs to be discovered. And that's why the Bible is written, and that's why Jesus came. A God you know who is real. And so verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To a new generation who didn't see the miraculous deeds of Egypt, it's as if Moses is saying, let's reboot, let's reset, and let's start from first principles. 
the God of your fathers and your God and our God too, the God of the Bible, is one. And we need to hear again. Secondly, main point. You must love him truly. That's the first point. Second point, main point. You must love him transformatively. That's a nice short title. You must love him transformatively. When you know this God, it changes you from the inside out. Where does it say that? Verse 5. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. We've thought about that already. With all your soul and with all your strength, with every fiber of your being. Now, the modern world is already getting uh, programmed and ready for Valentine's Day. It's the only time of the year when I buy my wife flowers unless I'm in trouble. But this year I'm away, so I need to do something special. In the modern world, love is just an emotion. Love is just a feeling. But here Moses is saying, verse 5, you must love the Lord your God. That's a command. That's an imperative. Now, how is that possible? Because isn't love an emotion? Well, love in part is an emotion. You can love somebody with, with part of your affections. But Moses is making a different point. The God who demands our worship, who commands our worship, he deserves a wholehearted affection. He deserves all of our heart, not part of it. It's not an emotive understanding. This is a wholeness of worship and adoration simply because of who God is. And there are two tests that you can pass or fail to see if you understand verse 5 and to see if you are loving God, Christian friend, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Here's the first test, verse 6. We're to love God in a transformative way, and that means you're changed, number one, individually. You're changed individually. Look at verse 6. Moses says, now take the decrees and all the laws and put them on your heart. Verse 7. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and in your gates. Do you see what God is saying here? Eyes down. When you're in the home and when you're on the road, there's no difference between your private life. That needs to be transformed when you come to know God personally. Your private life is transformed, but so too is your public life. No division, no dichotomy here. On the home and on the road, it's public and private. When you're out doing your job, when you're working, when you're cooking the dinner, when you're telling the kids off like we did at five to nine this morning. Then it says, when you go to bed and when you get up. Every part of your waking uh, existence is to be shaped by your adoration and understanding of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. Every part of your life, nothing is off limits to God. Then it goes on to say, write the laws down on your doorposts of your home. That means you apply who God is, who he's revealed himself to be to your family life. But also it says, write it on the gates of the city. That's different. That means you apply the truth of God economically, politically, socially, the gate of the city, that's when uh, big decisions were made. That's where justice was meted out. And so Moses is saying, the truth of who God is, his otherness, his reality, his thereness, has to shape every part of your life. You're to love God transformatively. Nothing is off limits. If you love God with your whole heart, it means that you love God with your whole life whole life. You don't just love God on the weekends like I did in my late teenage years. 
and I wanted so desperately to have friends at college that I was a different person from Monday to Friday night. And then it was Christian youth group. And that kind of, that shaped me on Saturday and Sunday was church. But then on Monday I was back to just fitting in with being one of the boys. No division, it's loving God in the private sphere of your life. Loving and acknowledging and seeking to share God with your friends in the public sphere as well. In other words, the love of God goes into every nook and cranny of your life. Everything. Nothing's off limits. Now, how does this work? In other words, you should be, with the Spirit's help, constantly asking questions. How does who God has made me shape who I am in this area of my life? How does the truth of God, the Bible, how does that help me to respond to this ethical issue? What does God say about this? What principles are there to bring to bear on this issue that faces me this week? Nothing is off limits. The Bible is sufficient for everything. That's the first test. To see if you love God transformatively, it changes who you are individually. Number two, second test. Look at verse four again. It's also corporate. This is so easy to miss in our Western society. Verse four says, hear and love me, listen to me, who? Israel. That's corporate, that's not private. That's corporate, that's God's people. God is not just saying to individuals, you need to love me in this part of your life, you need to love me in your home, you, you as in singular you, this is a plural you, this is a collective responsibility, this is a collective uh, mass of people who have their social existence, their fabric, their decision-making-ness, their relationalness shaped by who God has revealed himself to be. The whole community will be structured in a different way than other surrounding societies simply because of the character and nature and promises of God. If we had time, we could jump to Deuteronomy chapter 10. There's a parallel passage there. Let me just read you a few verses. It says this, Hear, O Israel, that's how it begins, What does the Lord your God ask of you? but to love and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For the Lord shows no partiality, he accepts no bribes, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, he loves the immigrant and the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are immigrants and aliens. Why? For you yourselves were once aliens in Egypt. It's not enough for you to say, I became a Christian at a Billy Graham rally in Wembley Stadium, and it changed my life. It's not enough for you to come to a service in a church in Epsom or in New York and say, God changed me at that point. That's true. Praise God for that. But God brings you into a family. He brings you into a church community. And it's in that community that you rub in the truth of God, and it shapes a new localized body of God's people, the church. And small families that are Christian families, small kingdoms and communities of light that are part of the global church. It's not enough to be changed individually. It's also corporately and socially. In Deuteronomy 10 here it says, God has such a heart that there's no racism. There's no partiality. People are cared for in a meaningful way, in a real way. And so Israel, you need to replicate that too. Israel, no racism. Israel, be careful of those who are mindful of those who are the poor, who are the fringe of society. Look after the widows, care for the elderly, have great concern for the yet unborn. 
Why? Well, if there is any of that racism, if there is any of that divisiveness, if there is a lack of care and concern for the marginalised in society, it's because you've forgotten who you are. You are. Because that little passage in Deuteronomy 10 says, for you yourselves were once aliens in Egypt. And then God acted. You are only who you are because of the grace and mercy of God. Therefore, demonstrate that grace to other people. A few years ago, we bought a bread maker, Panasonic 2500. It's a wonderful piece of kit. We use it most days. It works really, really well if you measure out the ingredients very carefully. Yeast, bread flour, the strong stuff, not the weak stuff, water, and all the other bits and bobs that go in there. And you program it, and within two hours, your house and your nostrils are filled with a fantastic smell of freshly made bread. But there has been more times than I'd care to admit when I've forgotten one extra ingredient. It's the paddle. The paddle goes inside the metal device that uh, contains the ingredients. And so rather than coming downstairs to a wonderful smell of freshly baked bread, I come down to the smell of burning flour. And then you open it up and you see not uh, 10 or 12 inches of bread goodness. You see two and a half inches of wasted, burnt uh, ingredients, all because I forgot the jolly paddle. And that has not happened once. I'm, that could be up to like 20 times. We're hopeless at it. It's such a waste. The Bible is saying in verses 4 and following of Deuteronomy 6, the love of God must be seen in every aspect of your life. The love of God is the yeast. There's to be no unmixed ingredients in your private or corporate life. There's to be no burning or bad odours because there are certain parts of your character and certain parts of the church life that you're a part of that are displeasing to God. How's your paddle? How's your paddle going for your application of the word of God to your life personally and therefore the family of which you're a part? Every aspect of your life, individually, communally, needs to be shaped by the truth of God and the word of God. It begins in the heart. It goes to your volition, to your will. Your mind is transformed. Do you know how that happens? Do you know how to do that? How do you paddle the yeast, the love of God, the promises of God, the truth of God, into every part of that uh, flowery existence? Metaphor's getting pushed a bit too far. I better move on. But look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells you how. This is how you become a person, a man and woman of integrity. Um, a Psalm 1 man or woman. Verse 6 says, impress these laws on your heart. That's kind of a wax word. It's an impressive word where you take like Henry VIII of old, molten wax, and you press your seal into it. You press the word of God into your heart and mind. Verse 7, you talk about it when you're in the home and on the road. You talk about them. Do you know what that means? That means community. It does not say Moses could have written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He could have written, listen. Listen to the word of God. But listening is passive. It's passive, really. He says, talk. He says, discuss. He says, take the word of God and talk about it with other Christian friends. If you're not yet a Christian, take the Bible. Take something you don't understand and talk about it to a Christian. And say, I don't understand this. Can you help me to understand what this means? Because you can have all the knowledge that the Bible gives and yet not know who the God of the Bible is. Think about this. 
When did you last ask these questions? What does the Bible have to say on the issues of sexuality that are so loud in our society at the minute? What does God have to say about the way I use my money? We thought a lot about that in the Gospel of Luke. What does the Bible have to say in the way I relate to my family? Because I want to be that paddle with the help of the Holy Spirit that gets the yeast, the goodness of the Word of God into every aspect of my life. Nothing's to be off limits. You can come to church and you can take notes and you can think that you're growing, but you won't be. Your knowledge base will be growing. Not until you're in a community of God's people. Please join a life group. If you haven't yet done so, come and speak to me and we'll get you plugged into one. Part of a local community of God's people that takes the word of God and says, how can we apply this to our life? What does this mean? I'm struggling with this. What does the Bible have to say on this issue? Love God truly. Love God transformatively, individually, but also corporately as well. Thirdly, if it's loving God truly and transformatively, there's one more thing that we need to look at. Verse 20, you need to tell yourself God's story. Number three, you need to tell yourself God's story. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, we uh, begin a description of a conversation. A son comes to his father and says, What's the meaning of these laws? Help me understand what God is saying. It's as if, to paraphrase, that the son is saying to the father, I see you uh, trying to obey and follow and keep God's laws. Why do you do that? And how do you do that? Now he could say, if you've got a Bible, it's just beyond our reading on the sheet, he could have just jumped to verse 24. He could have just jumped straight from verse 20, what's the meaning of these laws, to 24. He could have just said, because God says so. Because God commands it. That's why we keep God's law. Because God says so. Now you know if you've ever been a parent or if you've worked in the workplace in different ways, if you answer a command with another command, you get compliance. People just do it. Why do you do it? Because I told you so. But you won't gain someone's heart. And it's very interesting that the son comes and says to his father, what's the meaning of these laws? He does not jump to verse 24. He doesn't issue another command because I said so. Just do it because God commanded it. He doesn't say anything like that. He tells him a story and he reminds him of the gospel. Why? Why should we keep these laws? Why should we apply these laws to every area of my life? Dad, why are you living the way you do? Why have you made the decisions you've made? Why do you act with that person? Why do you care for them? And the father says to his son, verses 21 to 23, let me tell you a story of how God has acted in our lives. It's not a command, it's a story. And the father says in verses 20 to 23, the meaning of the law is the gospel. The meaning of the law is the gospel. The story of how God has acted in history by his grace to rescue his people, to give them what they haven't earned, to give them what they don't deserve. That's the gospel. And so he says in verses 21 to 23, the story of the Exodus. What's the meaning, verse 20, of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Verse 21, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Verse 23, and he brought us out from there. 
Why do you want to obey the commands of God because of what he has done? Not to win his favour, we've already received it. Son, let me tell you about how great God is. Let me describe to you the mighty acts that he has done. Let me tell you about the judgment of God that fell on the sin of Egypt ten times as ten plagues were dealt upon the God's lowercase g, of Egypt, how God revealed his majesty, how God revealed the strength of his arm and his might and his power, how he answered uh, the cries of his people and he saved and redeemed a people for himself. And the son could say, well, hang on. Our parents, our grandparents, they were as sinful as I am. They're as disobedient and as rebellious as you are. So how did God rescue them? How did he get them out? The answer is blood. You know the story, let me remind you of it. On the night of the Passover, as the angel of death was coming through Egypt, the judgment of God was about to descend for one last time on the gods of Egypt. As he was about to redeem and rescue a people, the only people who were safe were not the people who had put the law on the doorpost, it was the people who put the blood. And what does that teach us and what does that remind us? You're not saved by keeping the law. You're rescued by the blood. They hid themselves under the door frames. They hid themselves under the blood. They took a lamb. They killed it. They slaughtered it. They ate the Passover meal. They enjoyed God's provision. And then they obeyed God's command, which is to take the blood of a, a lamb and, and paint it liberally around the door frames so that when the angel of death saw the blood, they would be safe. Son, this is why you obey God. Not because you have to win his favor. You already have it. Not so that you are rescued and redeemed, we've already been rescued from Egypt. We've already been redeemed. God already has shown the strength of his arm. You don't obey the law of God because you think otherwise God will get me. You're not trying to twist his arm through obedience. As we saw about a few weeks, you're not trying to obey the law of God so that by your obedience you will climb a ladder to heaven, so to speak. God blessed us. God saved us. God rescued us, therefore we obey the law of God out of gratitude and out of love. That's why, verse 4, we're to obey the law, the Lord who gave the law with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, not to win his favour. He's already showered it upon us, but as an expression of our gratitude and love for what he's already done. And centuries later, John the Baptist was walking with dust between his toes 2,000 years ago and he uttered some very similar words. He said, see the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And it's almost at that point after John had baptised a bucket load of people. It's almost as if John the Baptist said, I get it now. I get it. The, the blood of those lambs, they would never take away the sins of the world. But in Jesus, here is the Lamb of God, and he will take away the sin of the world. That was a type, that was a shadow, but this is truth and this is fulfillment. Friends, look at him, turn to him. Friends, we need to tell ourselves again and again the old, old story as the hymn goes. That's why we obey the law of God. That's why we seek to love God with every fabric of our being. No area of our heart is off limits. Why? Because of what God has done, because of his greatness and his might and his majesty. Because of the fact that he made promises and he's kept them. 
Now, how do you get that truth? And unlike those burnt ingredients in my bread maker, how do you get them into your heart? It might be through post-it notes. I'm going to take a sentence and I'm going to meditate on it and it's in my pocket. It might be using a thing called a phone, that newfangled technology. Apparently you can get verses sent to you. Apparently you can have the Bible on it in an electronic form. Perhaps you like listening to messages. Perhaps you've got a minister that you appreciate. All you're trying to do is to get that paddle working, to get the truth of God, that yeast, into every part of your mind, to soften your heart, not to harden it. And so you Google some good Christian resources. Perhaps that's the way you can do it. My dad did it this way. My father would come home, having worked 40 years as an electrician. He did something very similar almost every night. He always had a bath. That was for the good of the family because it's hard work. But then with two fingers, he had all his fingers, but with two fingers, he would play the piano. That's all he could do because music wasn't that good. But he would take two fingers and he would bang out a tune on the piano. Why? Because he wanted to get the truth of God into his own heart through old hymns that he would love. And so he would try and read as much music as he could and use two fingers to bang out a tune to the best he could. He wasn't great. It wasn't the music that counted. It was the words. Because he was taking the truth of God and he wanted to get it into his heart. How do you do it? Do you know anything of that? Taking the truth of God and getting it into your heart. Memorization of the Bible. Post-it notes. Something in front of the sink if you spend some time there in the day. Something on your phone that you can take it and you can meditate upon it. So that the truth is in your heart. So that you're telling yourself the old, old story again and again and again. Because we need to hear it again and again and again. You need to find ways of telling the story to your heart in a fresh way. So that you can love God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for this imaginary story of a father or a mother with a son or a daughter walking in the heat of the day And they ask the question rhetorically, why shall we obey the commands? And thank you that the answer is not another command, but it's a grace-saturated story of your might and your mercy and your power in rescuing your people. Moses could point us back to the wonderful um, true story of Egypt and the deliverance of God. But Father, we look back not to that place, but to a cross. And please impress on us, not the salvation from Egypt, but the salvation from sin and death. Father, please burn, impress upon our hearts. Make them tender to your truth, we pray. That not only would we not sin against you, but you would help us to love you in a transformative way. So that no area of our lives would be off limits to your power and your truth. So by your spirit, please change us to become more like your son, we ask. Amen.